0: Purity culture is, at its heart, all of these things are inappropriate until you are a wife. And then you completely have to flip a switch. Completely. And you suddenly are expected, nay, commanded, to be okay with any and all physical intimacy. Because it is what you're supposed to do. Because you are supposed to go forth and lie with your husband, and multiply, and be comfortable with this. And that is is damaging in a way that I don't even have words for.
1: Hi there. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Hecate and this is Finding Okay, a healing podcast for survivors of sexual assault and any and all abuse. Today, I'm joined by Caitlin Bellamy. Caitlin is a professional actor, young adult fantasy author, and a variety streamer currently living in Orlando, Florida. She is an autistic, polyamorous chaos witch with a specialization in cozy comfort vibes and making other people feel safe. Caitlin is also an ex-Mormon and a survivor of an abusive marriage. I'm honored to have her as a guest, and today we'll be talking about what it was like for her growing up in the Mormon church, and how purity culture contributed to the abuse in her marriage. And now it's time for... Trigger and content warnings for this episode include the following. Sexual assault, rape, trauma, abuse, PTSD, cancer, death, religion, spirituality, and purity culture. Please check in with yourself and make sure you're all right to continue.
0: My 10-year anniversary of my divorce from my first husband is coming up in just like two weeks. And I spent nine of those 10 years very afraid of the repercussions of talking about any of this Um, and afraid of what my husband might say or do because we were keeping each other's secrets from whatever. And I was talking on my Facebook about how I was done being afraid, and it was unfair that the purity culture we'd been raised in had put us in this position where I was supposed to stay quiet about any of this. And someone said I had to look up purity culture. Jesus Christ, I have questions. I was like, I'm so glad you had to look that up. Like, I'm so glad you didn't know.
1: Yeah. Already
0: firsthand what this life is like and what the burden of you're only worthy if this does to people i'm very glad that some of my friends don't know yeah that, that life um oh. but yeah so i i've been i've been telling people that this was coming uh because the last time i spoke up everything got really really toxic and bad very fast and i went quiet for like a year again and i was like well it's time let's go uh so here we are it's time let's yeah. go no i'm
1: i'm so happy that i could be a A part of that, so I'm. It's an honor.
0: Thank you, and
1: thank you, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so (laughs) excited. (laughs) Sorry, I just like jumped into stuff. (laughs) No, yeah, no, it happens. It happens. All right. So,
0: are you are you okay? Uh, So there are times when I completely think that I am. I will go months at a time without thinking about. Without, uh, I will have months go by where I forget that I was ever religious. When I forget that I was ever in. A first marriage that I forget he existed, you know. And I I forget who I used to be, and and then suddenly these triggers will pop up, and I'll like spiral out even harder than before, and I'll go, oh no, I was just I was just masking very well. I just I compartmentalized too well, or or I'll think I'm fine, and then suddenly something will hit out of nowhere, unexpectedly, and I'll go, oh my god, like, and I'll just suddenly not be okay for like days at a time when I didn't expect that, when I thought everything was normal and I was over stuff or like nothing bothered me anymore. So so yes yeah. and no, <laughs> no <laughs>
1: honestly. That,
0: yeah. Highly relatable. Highly relatable. Yeah. I, I, I can say I'm finally in a place where um, for a really long time, the idea of being a tragic broken person was like half of my personality. And The fact that I'm now in a place where I want to move past that and heal and be better, where I want to not have that be the thing people know about me is huge for me, actually, though. Like, that is very big for me. And so that, to me, is a big step forward and makes me feel like I'm gonna be okay more than 10 years ago when, like, (laughs) you know. (laughs) That was big truth. And I really
1: appreciate you just, like, putting your finger right on that. That
0: thank was- you <laughs> <laughs> okay good no, amazing. I love
1: that I love that no it's <laughs> uh because I I think that's something that I think a lot of people uh experience but then have a lot of shame about and don't feel like they're allowed to admit that that might be yeah. a part of the healing process of uh, very hard. of like getting sucked into that identity and identifying with that. And I think mm-hmm. uh, it, it also doesn't help that outsiders shame that a lot yeah. Yeah. Uh, and use that to be invalidating. Yeah. And so we have to deny it, which means we can't own it, which means we can't move forward or fix it. Exactly. And it's just this vicious cycle and it's it's fucked up. It's really um, terrible. First death
0: bomb of the... <laughs> woo yes! I'm gonna fucking swear. Hey, if you're oh, in my yeah. family or you're anyone from church growing up, you knew what this was. And I will not apologize for any of the things that I say here today. So, uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> nice. And I would love to hear a compliment that you've received and never forgotten.
0: Unfortunately, this ties into question one uh, a little. So I I struggle to remember or accept compliments that are about me as a person rather than my art or like Mm -hmm. my skills or like what I do. It's a struggle for me. Um, Like most of the, like my initial reaction to this question is always like, oh my God, it was this thing about my writing or this thing about my acting. No, that's, that's not about me. That's about the stuff I do. And while those are very important to me, unfortunately, one of the compliments that has stuck with me the longest and like is part of my core personality. It's core memory is that i am able to smile and function through any level of pain like that is i the, the idea that oh my god you're so perky and bubbly we none of us had any clue you were going through all of this trauma mm-hmm. like i've always gone through shit i've always been in a like i've dealt with more in my small life than a lot of people have in twice the years and the first time it became really really clear to me his freshman year of college, and we had a stress specialist come in to talk to all of us. And I had already been diagnosed with a chronic stress disorder that had put me in the hospital two years previously. I already knew that I pushed. I was extracurricular girl. I was still gets good grades and is in 90 shows and teaches and works like kind of person. And I was proud of myself for taking on everything. And this man, this stress specialist, listens to my life and goes, you may need to schedule an actual appointment with me. And I was like, why? And he goes, because I would not looking at you know that you were going through anything. And I think you're holding it in too much. And I heard that as, oh my God, you're right. I'm so good at this. Like, because I've been hearing it for a long time. It's it's unfortunately been said to me a lot of like, you're Mm -hmm. so good at like pushing past and pushing through and like doing all these things despite whatever hell is going on. And uh, I know they meant it as a compliment. And I know it is technically a compliment. But unfortunately, it adds to that hero complex thing mm-hmm. of mine where I'm like, I can save the world if my legs falling off. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> so it's not super it's not super great. but, I'm, but I, I've embodied that a lot. dang. I know that's intense. <laughs> and again, like I laugh through it because I have to because that's my whole personality. Like, I like, hey, and I there are parts that I love about myself. But I could definitely find healthier ways to deal with it. (laughs) And it should not have become as much a part of my core being as it has.
1: So what is your favorite color or color combination? And what do you associate with it?
0: So I um, love. It's taken me a long time to. So it's essentially the colors that are on my tattoo. It is the 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 purple, blue, and pink. Uh, essentially, anything you would see in cyberpunk bisexual lighting on film, like um, it's it's that it's that purple, pink, blue neon combo. I've realized as I'm big into color theory as far as helping me focus. Like I will color coordinate my notes and my whatever with like this color. I also have synesthesia. So like this color is actually associated with a certain feeling for me or a certain idea for me. So I've actually broken this down quite a lot. It is, I started associating this color combination originally with like, the cyberpunk superhero aesthetic that I strove to be all of these like really cool, like badass women, I was looking up art for, for stories or character references or whatever. I was like, oh, this color theme, I gotta love it. But when I broke it down a little, so like it was not only who I aspired to be, but each of those colors represents a part of who I am or was Um, the pink for my overly large bubbly personality. It's often too big or too bright for people. So it was like neon hot pink like it's a very abrasive color. I am a very bubbly abrasive person. There's a reason why pinkie pie is pink um she loud it's a loud color and I love that about it in addition the uh the purple is what I associate with my internal magic and in my witchy side. I have associated those purples with my own magic for a long time mm-hmm. and then the blues when I was a kid, the blue was my favorite color I like I did the typical girl thing of paint the walls this color of blue, and like I went through a like deep ocean phase, and like all the shades of blue, I loved them all. And so for me, the blue is still that connection to my inner child and my like childhood and my parents, and and uh, specifically my relationship with my parents and who I was mm-hmm. as a child. So like those three as a as a whole now have just become so much of my aesthetic. Like any clothes with those colors on give um any any time that I'll walk through and there's a back gr- gr- like even in my Twitch background it's those it's these purples with the hints of blue and the pink and the everything and my little that. lights oh yeah I like I had this little neon light the little Saturn planet one that's like pink and blue neon yeah I've accepted absolutely that I like color and it's I I was I was in that I'm too cool for colors I'm just going to wear black all the time phase because I felt like I was supposed to be for a long time and I was like nah I like bright neons and jewel tones I'm going to accept that <laughs> yeah definitely mm-hmm. actually I made my little moonlight
1: purple for you
0: oh I love that thank you Now, <laughs> yeah, purple is is, is very good yeah <laughs>
1: awesome yeah I think you're I think you're our first guest with synesthesia
0: oh I I'm I'm discovering a lot of synesthesia things that I have um I did not realize how much of my magic system in my books is just synesthesia Mm. Like, and how much of it's just related to how I actually see the world. And I wrote it in a way other people could understand, with like smells triggering certain things and sounds gotcha. and all of these things. Like, that's big for me. The, the I can smell rain thing, and not just that, it unlocks a lot of things that are like, oh, well, it smells like this color and it feels like this sound. And it, like, all of these things are just very tied together.
1: So if I had to summon you in a (laughs) ritual, uh,
0: what five
1: things would I need to place as offerings at each point of the pentacle on the floor?
0: Anything having to do with foxes. Just anything. It used to be anything having to do with dragonflies. I have shifted. Um, Anything having to do with foxes. Glitter. Just fuck hard, just glitter. Just a pile of glitter. I like to sparkle. Get creative with it. Anything Christmas related. I have permanently paper snowflakes above my desk. My tree is still up downstairs. Christmas makes me warm and fuzzy in the whole soul. And I will just show up. I'll be like, 24 hour Christmas store, bam, I'm here. What's up? Like, just, I'll just show up. Uh, Notebooks and fancy pens that I will never actually use will instead be relegated to the shelf of too nice until I have exactly the right story for them. I will love and adore them, but I will not waste them on subpar ideas. Uh, and um and uh anything to add to my tinkerbell collection a tinkerbell item i don't already have i'll just show up like what where give like what do you need need maybe to kill somebody that's fine can i have that pretty (laughs) yeah i have the wings obviously it's perfect it's
1: perfect it's perfect i love it (laughs) i would love to hear three
0: essentials to your self-care. They're all three pretty simple. Um, it is fall or winter scented candles because I am a weather witch and I am in the best mental state in fall and winter. And so I figured out several years ago that I could hack my emotional state into being better when I had fall and winter scented things in spring, which I have weird seasonal depression where spring makes me miserable. I hate it. I'm sad all the time. for like four months. So fall and winter scented candles. The, the candle next to me right now is this like kitchen, kitchen spice one that has like cinnamon and cloves and, like, pumpkin and all that stuff in mm. it. Um, it's July. It's fine. Uh, cheese. Just full stop. Like, charcuterie board oh, cheese. Geez. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, it's my favorite, it's my favorite food of charcuterie boards. So, like, just bring me and I'll be happy, and then comfort TV and movies to turn off my brain mm-hmm. because oftentimes my own thoughts get in the way of my self care, and so turning that off by being like, "Let's watch My Little Pony for the 90th time. Let's watch Gilmore Girls for the 80th time. Let's fall deep into a Friends binge, despite the fact that we're aware of how problematic it is. It's just I know it, so my brain can. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I rewatched it recently, oh, and I it was bad.
1: Like, oh shit! Like it's yeah, so bad. It, it's- damn. It's-
0: The conversation about how I was raised is so everything I am now it's foundational. is so deeply wrapped up in that. Yeah. That that it's, it's 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 talking about one without first addressing the other feels unbalanced to me because yeah. I like, because even now I'm constantly having to justify to myself that I'm allowed to make these choices, that I'm yeah. allowed to be non-traditional, that I'm allowed to exist happily. In in an alternative lifestyle, and that's uh, it's still very hard, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah, it's there's still a lot of guilt wrapped up in it, uh, especially because of one a lot of stuff that happened in my first marriage. Being polyamorous f- still feels like a trap, mm-hmm. honestly, because my my ex has been used the potential of other relationships to manipulate me. Meaning,
1: like his potential to seek out so, other relationships. How do you mean? so when
0: he and I were starting to have uh, so I got married. I'm assuming we're not using real names. So we're okay. going to call my first husband, John. So uh, I got married when I was 19 and John and I were married for two years when uh, things started to really fall apart. As a matter of fact, it was just short of our two year wedding anniversary, or just past our two year wedding anniversary when we separated and everything just sort of fell apart. But one of the ways he was trying to save us, I remember we we're on this family vacation with his family down at the beach and we're like walking on the beach. And he had mentioned how he had like these ideas of like me going out and like making out with other men and then coming and telling him about it because he wanted me to feel sexy and desirable and I didn't. And he thought other men would make me feel that way, but then I would come home and be interested in him. Mm-hmm. And then when I actually did make out with somebody at a club down when I went home to see my best friend and my parents for for a weekend and actually did that, he then got mad at me. He was in, like, "I didn't expect you to actually do it." I was like, "You told me to do it. You told me this was what you wanted." Like, so, so that's a weird trap. Yeah. So my my husband and I actually refer to it by the the real name trap, but the John trap. Like, mm. I will have to double check with him. Cody and I have been. Cody was the one who brought up polyamory. Um, mm. my, and my husband won't mind me using his real name. Was the one who brought up polyamory. He was actually very scared that I would not accept him for wanting to be polyamorous, and I was like, no, "Like," and I dealt with my own issues with it. Because I have a lot of like feeling good enough sort of bullshit. Mm-hmm. But I, I came around to it and I, I also was like, I feel like it's a trap. I
1: mm-hmm. feel like
0: you're going to use it against me if I get into a relationship and you don't. I feel like you are going to use it to punish me later because this is what has happened to me in the past. Uh, shortly after my first husband and I separated, I... I essentially had an affair because I was still married. Um, but he moved out. We were separated. We were getting divorced. And after I told him about it, he was like, Oh, well now we're really getting divorced. I didn't mean it before, but since you slept with someone else, I was like, no okay. game. <gasps> yeah. It was, well, because he was able to shift blame to me then. Yeah. I've been asking why are you two getting separated? And he was not comfortable talking about it. He was not comfortable yeah. telling that we had all these other issues. And, uh, I was an easy scapegoat. It was easy scapegoat to say, well, she cheated on me. So that's why I was like, "Mm, technically, yes, paperwork wise. Yes. You had already moved out. You had left. You were sleeping at your parents. Mm -hmm. You told me you wanted a divorce. I told you I wanted to separate for a while because I was dealing with some fallout from finding out the truth about him for some that he had cheated on me before while we were engaged and all these things. and, And I was trying to adjust my expectations. I, I had at that point not known that I was autistic. I, If I'd known that then, I'd be like, hey, it takes me a while to adjust. Uh, you're throwing a lot of new information at me. I need to take a step back to process. process. Instead, at the time, it was panic over, well, if I'd known this then, would I have married him in the first place? If I'd known this then, would I have, the- we have all these things going on. What am I doing? I'm panicking. I've only been with one man in my life. I've only really. I got married so young. Was there more out there for me? Did I trap myself in a relationship with someone who doesn't actually want me? Like, it was a lot of that. And I spiraled out and I panicked. And he was like, well, if you have any doubts about me at all, then we're just going to get divorced. And I was like, I didn't ask you for that. I said a separation. He's like, no, we're all or nothing. And I was like, mm. okay. And then when I was scared and alone and terrified of being alone, because when you're raised in a church that tells you your purpose is to be a wife and a mother- the idea of being neither of them scared the crap out of me. And so I fell into this, this very quick, brightly burning relationship with a man who had been interested in me back home because I was scared. I was terrified. I didn't want to be alone. And I was broken and I didn't understand. And I had learned at this point now with this new man that uh, women could enjoy sex. That was new for me. And... uh and then he used it against me. He used it as a way to punish me. He used it as a way to make me a villain mm-hmm. to to everyone. That was actually the biggest reason I was afraid of talking about any of this for a really long time was um, when we got separated, we basically promised to keep each other's secrets. And then about a year ago, I I realized some stuff about our relationship and I was coming to terms with some trauma that I had not been aware of. And I posted about it in a small private Facebook group with like 80 people in. Small with the rule of nothing leaves this group. I never used names, I never used dates or timestamps. I never I I didn't even accuse him. It was not a accusatory conversation. It was a, hey, I'm healing. Here's my journey. I'm sure some of you women can relate. Here we go. It got back to him anyway. Mm -hmm. And he was like, Great, so I found out that she's spreading lies about me. Let me tell you everything that happened. Including, so she cheated on me, so she did this and this and this and this. And it all my biggest fears of repercussions from him, my family finding out that I had fucked up, all of these things, people thinking less of me because I had made a mistake was coming true. And it was mm-hmm. traumatic for me. And it was a violation of trust and a breach of everything. And I, and it then kept hitting after over and over and over again afterwards. He said in this post, well, I always loved her and I always kept her secrets, but it's I'm done with that now. And I had people immediately coming to me being like, oh, he didn't. you know that, right? Like the minute you left, he was telling everyone who would listen that you cheated on him so he gave sympathy. He
1: mm-hmm. never kept
0: any secrets. Like He told everyone. Okay. And I was like, I did not know. I spent so long being afraid of this getting back to the wrong people or people thinking less of me or people shaming or shunning me yeah, for things he was already saying and doing that I didn't know. And I was like, I, I spent so long being afraid of calling him out, being afraid of dealing with any of this in a healthy way at all. And he did it anyway. I was like, it didn't matter. It didn't matter when it came time to protect his own image and to try to make himself look like the good guy and the hero. He immediately threw me under the bus. And I was like, I was quiet for nine years. I I didn't even accuse him in this post. It was about me. He made my healing journey and my trauma about him. He made me saying, hey fam, Did you know that this and this and this is technically rape about him? He made me sing, hey, women who've been raised in the church, let's talk about boundaries and consent and good girl syndrome and maybe open up a dialogue to talk about healing. And he made it about him. Mm -hmm. He made it about, well, I'm going to vilify her and I'm going to look like a hero. And he said it over and over again. He was like, I always loved her. I still always cared about her. I still always, I was like, oh, you manipulative fuck. Okay. Okay. And then, and then my family, so I I talked to my family about it and, and I was like, I'm going to tell you this before it gets back to you because my biggest fear is coming true right now. And my family was very understanding, but also said, okay, now you just need to go quiet. You need to stop talking about it because it is reflecting badly on your family. And I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, bet. But I've realized in the years since, as I've been trying to deal with that, how bad of an idea that is. As more and more people come forward and tell me, oh, did you know he did this? Oh, did you know this happened? Oh, did you know I went through something similar? I was like, okay. Okay, I'm I'm done. <sighs> I'm done. I'm, I'm I'm done not talking about it, honestly. And there's also the, there's also the idea of feeling like my trauma isn't worth talking about. There's the idea of, oh, it wasn't it wasn't really that bad. You gaslight yourself into thinking that everything's fine.
1: Compare everything to the worst case scenario, which exactly. is absolutely
0: horrific. Yes. But it's yeah. it's valid. It's, it, it is. It matters. And, and it's the realization that it is indicative of something so much bigger is why I finally started talking about it again, where I was like, there's all these stories coming out, especially with how many rights women are losing right now, with how much our own autonomy is being stripped away, that. Churches are doubling down on purity culture and it's just going to get people hurt. Yeah, it got me hurt and it's been damaging in a way that I am still realizing. Years later, I'll be like, oh my God, this happened, this thing happened when I was 16 and I never gave a second thought to it. And now I'm realizing, oh, that was fucked up. Interesting. Oh, that's not, that's not healthy or good. And it's just a lot of that. Hence Mm -hmm. the, I'll think I'm okay. And then bam, suddenly, oh shit, trauma. Like I forgot, like- Oh, no, it's fucked up. I thought it was totally normal back then. That's that's not okay, you know? So it's a lot of that. It's a lot to dismantle and deconstruct. It is. It is it is a lot when you realize in your 30s, oh, my entire first marriage was rape and assault. Cool. What? Like when you suddenly realize as an adult that your formative sexual years were assault. And you didn't know it. That is a different kind of trauma. Than if it had been violent or aggressive or whatever. No, realizing after the fact, almost 10 years after the fact, oh my God, was I a victim? Was I, did I not know it? And then you feel like you're not allowed to feel guilty. You're like, oh, it happened so long ago. I should just shove it in a closet and never deal with it. Which is also not great. But it took my now husband, my second husband, bless the man, we were engaged and I was talking about some of my sexual trauma and like why I have issues in that area. I have issues being into, I have a lot of intimacy issues in general. And I had talked to him through all these things that had happened and he goes, and he just was listening to me talk about my two years of marriage and all these things. And I can get into all of that, but he's listening to me talk about all of these things that had happened. And he just looks at me really, really sadly and says, babe, that was right. And I was like, no, it wasn't. He's like, no, it was. I was like, you're wrong. You're incorrect. That's false. That's, oh my God, you're right. And it just broke me. And I was, and that's what I was trying to talk about with people. I was trying to say, hey, this is embarrassing. This is uncomfortable. But I know I'm not the only one going through it. And for him to then take that and be like, she's lying about me. He didn't say what the lies were, by the way. He was not brave enough to be like, she said I raped her. No, no. He just said, she's spreading lies. Let me tell you about her. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. buddy. Um the smear campaign. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things I want to talk about, honestly. I think people see a woman, especially looking like me, with the... Short hair and the tattoos and the like clearly rebelling against my religious upbringing. And men trying to defend against women like me will do one of two things. A, they'll assume I'm a lesbian and they will be like, you, uh, men won't want you anyway. I'm like, okay, I'd be flattered if I'm flattered when women want me. Have you seen women? They're amazing. Also, both of my male partners would like to laugh in your face. Two, they, they assume that I'm here to just talk about how much women have been hurt. I would counter with that purity of culture hurts both sides. In a way that I don't think the men are as aware of. In fact, I know they're not. I know. I know they're not aware of how poisonous this ideal is to them. Which is one of the reasons I wasn't like trying to accuse him. Because I don't think he was aware. I don't think he was aware of what he was doing or why it was wrong. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And, and so now, being presented with that information, his response is, I didn't do anything wrong. Instead of I should learn and be better, yeah, you know, and that's tragic in a different way, I think and
1: and it is. I love that you yeah. I love that you brought that up because any any system or like belief system that not only perpetuates the systematic rape of women, yeah. um, but also conditions and programs men to become rapists without mm-hmm. even realizing it. Yeah. Is evil. Yes. If you want to use that word. I do. <laughs> um, I, like, by certain definitions. Like I'm sorry. Like I don't. There aren't that many words to like yeah. fully kind of get at the insidious cruelty. At its, best,
0: cruelty. Uh, at its like, best it is willful ignorance. Yeah. It is It is willful ignorance of the system and situation. Because constantly the, the blame is put on the women. Women will come forward at these church schools and say, I was assaulted, I was raped. And the answer mm-hmm. is, Well, what were you doing in a man's dorm? It was your fault that you were there. That's against the honor code. What were you doing in this place? For me, I was hauled before, um, taken before the honor council at my own school and my bishop uh, after my affair. And um, they were like, Well, were you wearing your garments, which are famous Mormon underwear that's like covers all these things? And I was like, No, but it's because my husband told me not to. And they're like, well, you should have been. I was like, yeah, but I'm also supposed to listen to him.
1: My husband
0: had told me to stop wearing them. So I wasn't. Can I ask
1: why he asked you to stop wearing them? Because
0: he and I were not having sex. Okay. And he was trying to remove more and more barriers so that I would be comfortable having sex. And he, I mean, it was everything from like I want you to dress sexier. I was like, well, I'm wearing, I can't like, we aren't supposed to share show skin. He's like, well, maybe you just stop wearing those. And, mm-hmm. and then it's like one less layer of clothing I have to get through. Um, you'll feel sexy, but it was always four me. You'll feel sexier. Mm-hmm. You go and make out with the flirt with men. You'll feel sexier, but then I will reap benefits because you'll want to have sex. And our sex life had been so fucked up before that. Anyway, that it was just at that point, it was me feeling like I, I had to in order to make him happy and save our marriage. And it's it's so... I can't quite explain how damaging it is to do these things that you feel like you're supposed to do and be punished for them anyway. Like, I can't... I can't explain how trapped I still feel at 32, 10 years after the divorce, anytime I... Anytime I feel like I have misunderstood or misconstrued something. I'm like, is this really what he meant? Is this really what he wanted? Is this really Fuck? Like, it's 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 toxic and oh, there are long-term emotional repercussions for this entire situation. I'm realizing I should probably give context. <laughs> was, I'm like talking about the fallout and I was like, I should. <laughs> no, I was I was
1: actually gonna go back and I was gonna ask, um, did you did you grow up Mormon or did your family
0: convert? Were you always Mormon? I was always Mormon. And I, I didn't really, I didn't have a problem most of the time. And I would also like to say this for the record, because a lot of people have like childhood trauma that happens in the home. I don't actually fault my parents for any of this um, because my parents were actually fairly like liberal as far as religious people went. Like they like they were very open about things. They were very like, my mom was brutally honest about sex when asked Hmm. and that was the issue is in in societal standards i grew up in the south and in the church and the assumption of well you'll learn everything you need to out there in sex ed and in class and they are instead assuming your parents will teach you everything that you need to know meant I grew up with some learning gaps in that area. It, it is my my deep core belief that the ideal of purity culture, as as far as church goes specifically, and the idea of it's it's private, it's it, don't talk about it, don't do it, don't, 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 creates too many unknown unknowns. So I didn't know things to ask my parents. If I had known to ask, hey, is this appropriate? If it had been acceptable at any point, my parents would have answered in a heartbeat. They were great. They were wonderful. But The standards of what is or is not appropriate were so set by the church. My mom, especially, was so invested in what was or was not appropriate that it broke down the possibility for those communications. It it broke down. There was no possibility of those conversations happening organically. And it was never anything that I knew I was supposed to ask. Uh, To the point where, at one point, one of the things that stood in the way of my having a healthy sex life with my first husband was I, I had some pain and had some conditions that we didn't know about in in my lady parts and uh, and my mom was like why didn't you ever tell me I was like I did I told you that I had pain during my periods I told you that I had pain during sex but everyone did so I didn't know my pain was unusual until the gynecologist told me it was a mm-hmm. year after I'd gotten married and, and and I'd been trying to have a healthy sex life for a year and my mom was devastated Hmm. devastated to realize that she had missed something. So i I never fault them for that. I never fault my parents for that. And I never even fault them for like my dad was a convert when he was a little when he was younger. So he had a little more like life experience outside of the church. But my mom was born and raised. My grandpa's like a, a church history professor. Like they go all the way back. Like they are multi-generational. But they were still very understanding about a lot of things. The the weird situation I was always in was uh, most of my childhood or young adult trauma happened outside the home and my parents were my safe haven. And when it came to getting married, the idea was constantly, well, now you're each other's problem. You shouldn't mm. go to your parents about these things. My husband would get mad at me. for com- I, I didn't want to complain to my parents because they were so invested in me having a healthy, happy life that I felt like I was letting them down if I had problems in my marriage. Mm. I felt like I was failing them if i was in a bad situation at home after the fact after the divorce after all these things my parents were devastated that i had not felt comfortable coming to them and it wasn't their fault it was just the life i, I yeah. went to a church school i was surrounded by church going people it was reinforcing this ideal of don't talk about it like <laughs> yeah and i didn't know what else to do That's what and you were it was set up for yeah um there was actually a moment at one point where my mom and like I was like also my parents weren't perfect. They they did they did everything could they uh I had like fear of getting punished. Like a, like a genuine panic and fear over getting punished because like not that I was ever like abused as a trap I think I was spanked twice in my life ever. And both times they gave me a choice. They were like, We can take your book away or you can have like those were your disciplinary they gave me options. Like and both times I was like, Well, I need to keep reading the book, so you can spank me, it's fine. Like Twice in my whole life. Like they were not big. They didn't have to discipline. But like I have like this weird, deeply ingrained fear of like even verbal punishment. I've realized since then it's the autism thing because we translate emotional trauma as physical pain. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would be physically in pain getting yelled at. Didn't realize that at the time. I realize it now. So I had this fear of punishment. And so I was also scared to tell them because, again, I was afraid I was going to disappoint them. Mm -hmm. I was afraid that people were going to be mad at me. And I big fear. Gut, gut wrenching fear, and so I I felt horrible for years after that. I couldn't, that I hadn't been able to talk to my parents about any of this until after the fact. But yeah, I was, I was. It's important to me to mention. Yes, raised Mormon. Yes, I have a lot of issues with the church. I have a lot of issues with the purity culture surrounding it. No issues with my parents specifically, though. And that's always important for me to say. For me, like it's very important for me to say. (laughs) So.
1: How did growing up Mormon affect your worldview and also your, your view of who you were or who you were meant to be, what your value was in the world as,
0: as a person, as a woman, especially? Growing up Mormon made me feel broken, which is a sentence I've never said out loud before. I remember sitting in, at a certain age, they separate the genders. At a certain age, you go to young women's or young men's. And that continues as you get older. Relief societies for women, Priesthood is for men.
1: I'm so sorry. I'm I. I grew up without religion, okay. and I know that Mormonism oh, yeah. no, is like fine. a separate thing as well. Um. So is it like Islamic culture where
0: it's separation for prayer or for like everything, like in Saudi so,
1: Arabia, or are they're separate? So, no. Like so it's what kind it is a,
0: so it is a sect of Christianity. Um. It is mm-hmm. it essentially how it works is this. Um. In when I was growing up, at least they have shifted the format a little bit. When I was growing up, church was three hours long. It was uh. First um, sacrament meeting, which is everybody. Big chapel. It okay. is where you take the sacrament, the bread, and the water, which is a thing Catholics do as well, sort of. Yeah. Um. It's not quite communion, but it's similar. Um, and it's like essentially what you would imagine as sermon time is sacrament meeting it's that's an hour long you do songs you do prayer, you do talks like it's it's rarely like one pastor sitting and talking it is no members of the congregation are picked to give talks like that is a thing like it's okay. it's a community thing and a lot of that I liked except for I never liked getting up and talking I didn't like being the one chosen I, uh, I I hated it in fact even when you're very young they'll start calling on you to hey can you give a talk in a month here's your topic I hate this but it's just what you do hmm. so there's that first hour sacrament meeting prayer song whatever. And then for the second hour, you split into Sunday school. Um, and when you're younger, it is Sunday school is um, like the, the kids go to Sunday school together and learn all this stuff with everybody. And the adults go to Sunday school together. Husbands and what everybody. Okay. But the third hour is split into different genders. The third okay. hour is the women go talk about women things. The men go talk about men things. And when you hit 11 or 12 years old, that also happens in Sunday school. Okay. But for the primary kids. For like when I was 11 years old, we went to young women. So for that third hour, you're split. The idea being there's different things you have to talk about because you have different gender roles. The Mm -hmm. men are the ones who hold the priesthood. The women are the ones who are the mothers and wives and and whatever. Different responsibilities. And so you talk about different things. Exactly. And in theory, I I grew up absolutely feeling like it was a good thing because I was embarrassed and uncomfortable with my own. There were things I couldn't talk to the boys about, like having crushes on them. There were things you couldn't talk about in front of them. That made sense to me. But the older I got, the more aware I started becoming of, this is to teach you what a woman should be. And I never felt like one of them. Mm-hmm. I never felt demure or calm or patient. And what's more is I didn't want to be. I liked being fierce and fearless and loud and opinionated. I These things I liked about myself, I was constantly told were wrong. The things I wanted to be, I loved the idea of having a career. And I was told that motherhood was more important. I wanted to marry someone who already had kids because I knew at a young age, I didn't want babies. I didn't want to put my body through that, but I had to force myself to, to fit into a different box. I loved being able to do theater at church. The moment that my, um, um, I'm, I'm someone in our, in our branch started putting on shows when I was 10 years old and I started auditioning for them immediately. And that was a church sanctioned way for me to be bigger and i was very good at it i became leads i i learned to be i'm a professional actor now because of that community theater at church and i was very good at it but it was the time i was allowed to be something more i was allowed to be more when i went to girls camp because we could be loud and we could swim in the lake and we could do i was the reason why we had archery lessons like the boys because i was like why do they get to do cool stuff like knot tying and we have to like do crafts it's boring like so like i fought for personally and became a camp counselor and all these things to live a life I wanted within sanctioned church ideals. Because at church, I had to be quiet. I was undiagnosed at the time. didn't realize that I paid attention better if I was doing something with my hands. Instead, if I brought something to church to do with my hands, I was looked at like a sinner because I wasn't paying attention. Mm. A lot of what I was and who I wanted to be was forced into a tiny, tiny box. And unfortunately there was a lot of church I loved. There was a lot that I was like, "Okay, great. I love this part of it. I love this part of it. I love this." But they were all the community things. It wasn't the gospel itself. It was the people who did like me. It was that was a small group of people. It was the things and the and the events I felt good about that I liked. Mm-hmm. I liked camping. I liked going on the reenactment pioneer trek. I liked going to events. I liked going to dances. I liked playing capture the flag or church basketball. I liked all of these things. I didn't like sitting in church for three hours every Sunday. I didn't like wearing skirts. uh, Pantyhose were the devil. I didn't like having to fast every first Sunday of the month because I was hypoglycemic and it made me sick. Mm -hmm. I didn't like a lot of the things that other church members judged each other for not doing. There's a time during uh, the first Sunday of the month, which is fast Sunday, which is you skip the first two meals of the day. And are supposed to like donate those, the amount you would have spent on those foods to charities and stuff. Like in theory, a good thing. During Fast Sunday, it was also testimony meeting, which is there's no scheduled speakers. You just get up and speak and and bear your testimony about the church and the gospel if the spirit moves you. And if you don't get up, it's that look of, do you not believe? Why aren't you standing up? If all of your friends get up, you are kind Mm -hmm. of expected to get up. And I think I, I think I lied my way through those about 90% of the time. I felt more comfortable at camp. I felt more comfortable at girls camp. I felt more in tune with spirits and the Lord and the universe and the whatever and my own spirituality at girls camp every summer than I ever did in church. But I was told regularly that that was wrong. I was told regularly, you can feel God best at sacrament meeting. And I was like, that is incorrect. You, you can feel God best at sacrament meeting. I can't. I feel him best in nature. Should have known I was a witch. Like, I absolutely felt better about myself in all the things that they told me I wasn't supposed to feel. And I, so I felt very wrong most of my upbringing. I felt broken most of my childhood. And young adulthood, except when I was doing those extracurricular church things. That, that's a hard thing to admit because I still have a lot of church memorabilia at this house that I cannot bring myself to get rid of because my parents, because I miss them, because they both passed away, because church was important to them. It was an important part of my formative years. And so it's very hard to fully separate from. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really hard. It, and it's really hard to still not feel like I'm doing something wrong. Thank you for talking
1: about that, especially because it was hard. Um I, bless. <laughs> but I think I think it is very important to to say and I'll, like I know that you saying that is going to resonate very strongly with other people who desperately need to hear somebody else say that, who maybe is feeling broken and alone with what they're yeah. going through and uh and feeling like it's wrong. Oh yeah. I'm glad that there were things that you could connect with that nurtured you while you were going through
0: that me too i I think I would have that would have been a very different person if I had just left um but I was also never brave enough to like the fact that my older brother got away with like not going on a mission and like sometimes just not going to church like felt unfair because I didn't get away with that. It was a weird time and there's a lot now, that, like, like as I'm breaking down a lot of this as an adult, I'm going, oh, that should have been a warning sign. Oh, that's that's interesting. I think, and uh, specifically with the, the gender roles thing being reinforced when I never felt like, like, I am a domestic bitch. Don't get me wrong. I love baking. I love cooking. I love cleaning. I do not want to have to do it, though. There's a big difference. And I've watched so many women be forced into those roles. Whereas I grew up in a house where my mom worked and my dad didn't. I grew up in a house with the non-traditional gender roles and I loved it. But my mom felt guilty her whole life that she had to work. She Mm. didn't want to work. She wanted to be a mom. She wanted Mm. to be a stay-at-home mom. Whereas the rest of her children, the reason we have good work ethics, the reason we have drive and all these things are, are half because we watched her do it all. And we were amazed by her. We tried to tell her that our, her whole life, how much we respected that about her, but it wasn't the life she wanted to live, but it still resonated with all of us in one way or another with, I want a career. I want a life. I want a something else. And she felt guilty about that for a long time. So it was also when I brought Mm -hmm. up that I wanted a career, I felt guilty telling her because she so badly wanted us to have the life she didn't have, you know, and that was always, that was always rough to, again, it was, is it was, it was hard. It, it feels broken when, when you watch someone else want something for you that would have made them happy. And you're like, why don't I want that? Why don't I want this for myself? Why don't, why is this not me? Why is this not? So I respect this person. I respect the hell out of my mom. I loved her very much. She was one of my best friends in the world. Why didn't I want the life she wanted? Mm-hmm. Like why, what was wrong with me that I didn't want this? And that's, that's hard to grow up around. Yeah. Um, yeah honestly, of, of why don't I, why am I not, like, normal, you know?
1: It can feel like you're loving them wrong. Yes. When you're not,
0: though. Yes. That is a, a thing I was bringing up to someone recently. Um, I talked about it a little bit with you, and then I think I mentioned it to Cody about how hard it is sometimes to find yourself not because you're rebelling against your upbringing, but in spite of it, because, like, I still loved and respected them so much. And when people use the well, you're, you're breaking your, your mother's heart or you're tarnishing your father's memory. I'm like, I'm not like, do you understand how hard it is for me to be the most authentic version of myself while still loving and respecting their memories and knowing that they would be a little heartbroken by some of this? It's very difficult. It would be easier for me if I just didn't respect them. It would be easier for me if I was like, fuck my parents, I'm fine. But oh no, I miss them daily. I miss them Daily. It's very hard to try to find the right version of yourself in a society or a family or whatever that you still care about. It's so hard. And that was one of the hard things for me at church was like, was like, I loved all the people there and I loved so many things about it that trying to fight through it and find the best version of me in spite of those things was so difficult. It was so hard. And I, I guess for some reason I assumed that when I got married, it would all fall together because that was so often the end goal for most women. That was taught as the end game. Marriage, family, kids, done. Like, that was the goal. Mm -hmm. That was the end. That was the point. Sunset and credits. (laughs) Exactly. And then I got there and everything fell apart and everything went to hell. And, And I'm still trying to recover from the trauma from my first marriage when it was supposed to be the end goal, you know? It's a little fucked up to try to work your head past. Like, this was supposed to be the thing that saved me, and it broke me worse. Like, that's – it's rough.
1: I feel like – I feel like moved to say something, but I don't want to trespass. You're okay. Go. Go, go. Yeah. When you were talking about parents being your true self and knowing, like, how difficult that would have been for certain parts of of who you are and what living your truth is, like, and I – so desperately hope that this isn't trespassing. I don't know what your beliefs are, but I believe that a part of death is some kind of revealing of truth, whatever that means, mm-hmm. and that that there's a difference between like who people are in life and who they are after that truth mm-hmm. has, you know, like and and all the all the things that we're stuck in, um, and all the illusions that are before us when we are so small. In our, in our little meat cages. And, uh, <laughs> and then after we're allowed to expand and connect and it's that connection with, you know, whatever, whatever yeah. is going on. Yeah. And I truly believe that, that whatever connection or whatever truth has been revealed, that it allows them to, to fully appreciate who you are and what you're doing and the truth that you're living. And I like, and like I again, I just hope it's okay for me to say like I truly believe that
0: that they are proud of yeah. you I everything that you are. I actually believe that too, and it took me a while to come around to that. It took me a long time to come around to the idea that they would still be proud of me despite the fact that i'm don't I'm not following a life that they had set for me because I remember that they knew me better than anybody, and I remember the few times like. Like, when I told my dad that I was living with my now husband before we were married, he was like, okay, great. Does he have furniture, though? Because, like, 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 like his, his big surprise was, okay, does he have furniture? Is he okay? Because, like, he had to move. Like, is he okay? Do you guys need anything? And I was like, you're not mad at me? He goes, I trust you. I was like, what the fuck? Like, and, like, that was, was such a shock to me. Mm. Or like my mom as she got closer and closer to because. They both died of different kinds of cancer. Um, as my mom got sicker and sicker, she, like, suddenly shifted her focus to, like, to my dad, where she was like, I, I hope you have the money to pursue your art when, when I'm gone. And it was this thing where, like, she had always kind of held it against him that she had to work. And, like, as she mm-hmm. got sicker and closer and closer to being gone, like, her perspectives shifted and her, like, ideals shifted to let her understand more what made people around her happy. And I was like, the fuck? Like, it was beautiful. And heartbreaking that mm. she realized so late some of these things, and even my dad was like i was I was shocked by her by her by her shift, and like they even stopped asking me like they would come down and see me down here in Orlando, and my mom never really asked if I was dating anybody, she didn't care, and that was huge. She wasn't asking if I was getting married again, she wasn't asking about boys or family or kids or any of that, and she was just proud of me for being me. She was proud of the shows I was putting on. She was proud of the books I was writing. She was proud of all of this. And like, and like that was huge. So I have to hold on to those things. And yeah. the fact that she was getting, they were both getting to know me more as as I moved away from home and moved away from church and moved away from all these things. And the fact that I can still I'm gonna get witchy spiritual for a minute. The fact that I can still feel them regularly feels to me like they haven't abandoned me and that's that's huge um like my dad had his falconer's license when i was a little kid like he was big into like birds of prey Mm -hmm. and every now and then there's this like neighborhood red-tailed hawk who like that was his favorite and like it just like stuffs by i'm like that feels like dad Every time it's there, I'm like, hi, dad. Like, every time I'm like, oh, I feel like that. That feels like him. Like, it just showed up out of nowhere right after he died. Like, I came home from his funeral and there was suddenly this bird in the neighborhood. And I'm like, I've never seen that bird in my life. The fuck is happening? Oh, okay. Or like, I'll have dreams about them. For which my sister gets mad at me. She gets mad at me because I have dreams where they visit. And she doesn't. And I'm like, that's not my fault. (laughs) Like, why are you angry at me (laughs) that I have this? I didn't ask. But like, thank you. Um, so like, they like there's there's these like I have a lot of feelings that they're still around in here and like all these things and, and and that's very helpful. But it's still it's still that like fear that that like big fear in my head of what would they say or do right now if mm-hmm. I I didn't have the tattoos I didn't have I wasn't poly. I wasn't all these things and now I am, I'm like there's still that biting fear of like oh fuck what if uh, you know um, and I try to push past that. <laughs> Because I don't so- want to be afraid of their memory, you know. That's not that's not the relationship we had in life, and I don't want it to be the relationship we have in death. So,
1: yeah, I'm so glad that you have that connection and that you had that experience of that that shift before they passed. That's yeah. so important. I I know yes. that so many people who leave the church or, uh, or shift and, and change their lives that a lot of the time family is something that, uh, that they end up having to completely like cut ties with. They never have any sense of being valued as who they truly are or, or, or any sense of resolution or, or connection. Um, and it's, it's really difficult. Like it's a part of that trauma and, and, and that healing is, is, uh, is having to, to deal with, uh, with that, cutting off family members. And, uh, and that's so incredible. Yeah.
0: It's, there's still some, there's still some difficult with my, with my extended family or, and even, and even some of my siblings that is hard to push through. Um, but it's it's never been easy for me to just cut people off. And so mm-hmm. I, I just often keep finding myself hoping that things improve with the family members i disagree with or the or the ones i'm struggling with right now mm-hmm. um because they are not okay with who i am some of them and and it's mm-hmm. it's that's fairly painful but it's it's not my biggest focus honestly anymore it used mm-hmm. to be it used to be my biggest fear and it's really not anymore and that's a nice that's a nice place to be where i've hit a place with a couple family members specifically where i'm like oh well when i talk to them again it's not the end of the world okay Next, like I've just, I've just, that wall has kind of gone up of like, okay, here's the ones who stuck around anyway and like mm-hmm. know all these truths about me and are like closer to me now than ever. And then there's the other ones who are still trying to put me in their box and still trying to force me to believe what they believe or worse, trying to force me to be the version of me they thought I was because they never really got to know me. Mm. They, the number of people. Who go, this isn't how you used to be. Yeah, I was masking, bitch. Yeah. This isn't how you Yeah, I was cover I was lying my whole childhood. I was lying about who I was because I didn't want to fight with you, or because I didn't want to get in trouble, or because I was scared of being grounded, or because I was scared of this and this or people not liking me, or people like I was afraid of living in a house where people knew the real me. Because I didn't want to get teased, I didn't want to get yelled at, I didn't want to get punished, I- any of these things. I I was afraid. Of even as an adult, admitting some of the things I really believed, because I didn't want to fight, because I didn't want to deal with the fallout of you keep sending me emails with like articles and shit that like I don't want to read that prove your point. Like I I don't want to do that. I don't have the spoons for that. I don't have the anything for that. So like I would just lie and like be like, okay, that's nice. Family members who are like, well, this isn't how you used to be is like, yeah, bitch. Who I used to be was an entire lie. Get to know who I really am. Stop pretending like you know who I was. You don't. You mm-hmm. don't. I promise you don't. Um, you think you do? You do not. <laughs> um, so that's that's always fun.
1: <laughs> what has helped you kind of get to that place where you were able to find more importance in living your own truth and valuing your own? experience and autonomy rather than pleasing them or worrying about them and, and being able to like put up those boundaries or those walls uh, internally with like I'm, I'm not going to care about what this person thinks about me anymore.
0: Hmm. Every time I've hit one of those milestones of oh I don't care it has been because a worst fear has already happened. Mm. Um, a year ago when my when my ex-husband like pu- went public with all our shit that was my worst fear for a really long time. And it happened, and I got over it.
1: And no, I was like, oh, I wanted
0: to ask about okay. that when you were talking oh, about oh, that. Oh, I, I'm going to need – a lot of this is going to need context, and I will talk you through all of it. Um, Go for it. Yeah. Uh, but it's so like that happened, and I was like, oh, okay. Or then, like, being brave enough to get my tattoo because I really wanted it, but being scared of my family finding out, being scared of showing it anywhere. I was, like, planning on how I was going to wear long sleeves every time I went home. Mm. And then my aunt and I had a phone call during which I realized she already knew that mm-hmm. I had a tattoo. And I was like, oh, she's not hanging up on me. She's not disowning me. She's not telling me I shouldn't have. I know she doesn't dis- She doesn't agree with it. But I told her I was planning on getting more. and I told her I was planning eventually on getting a few piercings. Mm-hmm. But that they were always things I'd wanted to do. And she like accepted it and moved on. And I went, if she knows I have a tattoo, she probably also knows I'm polyamorous and drink and swear. And I've been hiding all of those things for a really long time. Huh. Interesting. Okay. And so like all these things happen or like I got into this huge fight with my sister about, and like, I've always been afraid of losing family members. And I realized if I'm going to lose her someday, it is because she refuses to accept the version of me that I am. And at the end of the day, trying to be someone else hurt me more. So it's just always – or, like, my biggest fear with my publishing career and my artistic career was losing my parents, and I've lost both of them anyway. My biggest fear was what if they never get to see what I become, and they already didn't, so I moved past it. I was like, anything else at this point, my dad got to see my books. Not all of them, but most of them. And my mom got to read the first one finished. It wasn't published yet, but she read the complete cover to cover and, and loved it. So, like, they knew what path I was on, and that's all I can ask
1: it's beautiful.
0: I have to so it was, it was every time it was the universe forced me to face my biggest fears anyway and get past them. And I went, "Okay. All right, cool. Let's go." Great. And I've had a large support group of found family and partners and friends and viewers and I have all these people who've made it easier for me to accept bad things are going to happen. People are not going to accept me for who I am. I will still have people. The people who matter will though people who matter will still be here. And that's been a process the last year specifically of coming Mm -hmm. into my own because it's been a really formative year. It's been a very, very, a lot of shit packed into one year because it was last in February, 2021 was when all the shit hit the fan with my ex-husband. At that point, I was already talking to my long distance partner, but I hadn't met him in person yet, but he was still there for me. I was also diagnosed with autism last year, and they were all still there for me. I got my first tattoo in this past, this year, and everyone was still there. And people are still talking to me and all these things. And I was like, okay, all this shit I was always afraid to do is not having as big of consequences as I thought it was going to. Because nothing I wanted to do was like super out, out there. It's not like I was like, it's not like I just decided one day, hey, I'm going to change everything I believe in. No, it was just all extensions of me I already was. And what's great is like people from college or people from who knew me all, all go, this makes sense for you. All of them regularly will come to me and be like, no, mm. one get this for you. This makes sense. This is perfect. I was like, I didn't even think you saw me. I didn't think you noticed. And like people have been messaging me from high school who are like, hey, I know we didn't talk a lot back then, but like, I just want to let you know, like i'm seeing your journey and like i appreciate it like this guy like this guy from high school i was barely friends with now we now talk all the time and he's like i'm really proud of you it was like i didn't know that you noticed honestly
1: isn't that weird yes <laughs> <laughs> funny when so that weird. Happens. yeah i i get, <laughs> i get those people sometimes too and i'm just yes. like, it's like I... what the fuck <laughs> 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 yeah yeah yeah. yeah. no. it and it it's a it's a great example too for for like the ripples that people make in the world. like yep. you ha we never have any idea the effect that we're having on other people like other people yeah. do see us and if you're being a good person like and you're being true to yourself that matters to the people around you even if you don't think it does they see it mm-hmm. somehow it it means yeah. something like there there are people in my life that were just on the periphery and just them existing nearby yep. saved my life yeah. because it was like a beacon for me yep. And I, I think I think we all have
0: people like that. And um, to know I am someone's people like that is yes. a whole thing. I was like, oh my god, what? Um, so you like, like thank it you. It's wonderful. And and so yeah, that was a lot of those walls were broken down for me by force, and I just had to roll with them.
1: Um, <laughs> when you were talking about all this stuff happening and this being your worst fear, I couldn't help but. Like that was kind of relatable to me, and some things that I've gone through where oh. where it was like, okay, so this is worst case scenario, and it's happened. Okay, so that was all the cards. Yeah. And now right? what? Now I'm almost free. Like, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. From, yeah, that's, and that's, that's weirdly a pain that you go through when, cause like, again, I lost both my parents very close together. And every time that was the worst case scenario, and it happened anyway. Hmm. both times worst case was they die worst case was i'm without them both times it happened and i was like well uh, okay well, i'm primed for this shit now all right like cool next like handled my dad's weirdly better because of what we were ready we were like okay we did this already we know how this is ending all right let's let's get going like it was just like unfortunately you hit a per you at a certain point where you start to recognize the worst case scenario coming for you where you go can we just get it over with can i get to the next part can i get to the aftermath it's much easier to deal with than the actual trauma of the event let's go um the waiting is awful and Mm. unfortunately like that's which sucks like that's a, a horrible place to be in but like i get to the point where like i'm like okay i'm going public with this stuff now can we get to the fallout like can I just get to whatever he's gonna say or do if anything? can we just let's mm. go? um because it's easier to because I've been through I've been living through the aftermath fallout for a long time now of lots of dramas just stacked up on top of each other and I'm surviving them. So great, amazing, cool. Next like <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird living through multiple worst case scenarios back to back. Where you're like, oh, oh, I can handle that. Okay. I don't like that I can, but I did. I don't want to do it again, but at least I know it's coming now. No. All
1: right. <laughs> I'm still here. So this is weird.
0: Yeah. Oh, didn't expect to make it this far. Interesting. Mm.
1: <laughs> so I wanted to ask about your experience of purity culture because when you go looking for it it looks like it has different ways that it kind of is articulated in different cultures like or different mm-hmm. sects so like evangelical mm-hmm. purity culture i would imagine that mormon purity culture is slightly different and i wanted to ask what exactly that looked like for you and like how were you being treated what was being said to you uh what were you taught and then i want to So I want to clarify that for people, especially because Mm -hmm. there might be some people who aren't familiar with purity culture at all, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or Mormonism at all. Uh, And then I want to lead that into the conversation of how did this set you up for your marriage Mm -hmm. uh, and the dynamic in your
0: marriage? Fantastic. I'm ready Um, because I actually have a, a perfect example from my real life that sums up how purity culture is treated, especially in the Mormon church with the ideal of it is the woman's job to be the gatekeeper of all purity and not the man's. It is the woman's job to cover up and not the man's job to not be tempted. It is a lot of that. It, Cause like I had tons of examples growing up. For instance, my mom would not let me wear pajamas in public ever because if a man sees you in pajamas, he'll imagine you in bed. The flip side of that, coming from my dad years later was, honey, if a man's going to imagine you in bed, he'll imagine you in bed no matter what you're wearing. It doesn't matter. and But that's not talked about. They were married and they didn't discuss that dynamic. My mm-hmm. mom saw it one way, my dad saw it another and it was never communicated. But that's not the example I'm talking about. The example I'm talking about happened when I was 16. As I mentioned, I did a lot of church theater. And when I was 16, I was in Romeo and Juliet. I was playing Juliet. My director believed in if you're a lead specifically. If it's a different day, your character is wearing a different costume. He believed in... There was no willing suspension, no disbelief when it came to costuming. No, no. If you're a different day, you change. Um, So as Juliet, I am one of the people who has to change frequently. I'm on stage a lot. And I don't remember Romeo having to change that much because... It was easier for the man to just put on a different vest and call it a day. I had to change whole dresses and headpieces. And at that point, I had longer hair, so I had to fix my curls in between. So most of the time, I had time to run back to my personal dressing room, which was one of the church, like, Sunday school classrooms that had been turned into a, here's all of her Juliet costumes. And I had people helping me and all these things. But there was one specific quick change where I had six lines of dialogue To fully change. Top to bottom. Everything but my shoes had to be different. Just whoosh. So I would, the moment I'm out of audience view, I would just start running. And I would start changing as I went. And I remember the three, it was Mercutio, Ben, uh, Romeo, and the other one, are standing in the hallway. And during rehearsal one day, during this tech week, one of them stopped me and he goes, Hey, um, we're really uncomfortable with the fact that you're like changing where we can see it. Can you wait until you get into your dressing room to, to do that because it makes us uncomfortable that we're seeing skin. Like I was wearing a tank top like this underneath everything, but it made them uncomfortable. And I stopped and I was like, what do you have to be back on stage? And they were like, not for a couple of scenes. I'm like, then why are you standing here when you can go somewhere else? And the I was like, if you're uncomfortable, leave. And the looks on their faces so perfectly encompass how purity culture was for me, which was it had never crossed these men's minds that they could remove themselves from the tempting situation. Instead, the burden was on me to not be a temptation, despite the fact that my needs in that moment needed to be prioritized over theirs. It that was my
1: first time that
0: anyone had yes, ever made a request like that of them. <laughs> yes. The and it was and that is something I dealt with my whole life. The idea that, and and this is what I'm saying when I talk about how purity culture is also toxic to the men, because they thought they were being good guys by telling me that I was inappropriate. Mm -hmm. They thought that they were being the heroes by being, you know, we can see your skin, right? You know that you should wait. You know, we can see. They genuinely thought they were being the heroes by Mm. telling me that they could see my skin. As opposed to leaving the situation. And they looked confused when I told them, Hey my dudes, I actually have to be here. You don't. They were they were so bothered by that. They're like, what if someone else walks by? What if well, they also can just know that this is where I have to change. And they can go somewhere else. No one else has to be here right now. And if you did, you can face the fucking wall. If you're uncomfortable. I'm not anymore. I, at that point, had been at a performing arts high school for two years. I no longer cared. They did. But it was still my job to cover up. In a nutshell, there's Mormon purity culture. It is not the men should maybe not imagine us in bed. It's the women shouldn't wear pajamas. Mm -hmm. It's not the men need to remove themselves from tempting situations. It's the women need to not be tempting anywhere Mm -hmm. ever. Which is part of the reason why situations like my marriage get so fucked up because purity culture is at its heart all of these things are inappropriate until you are a wife and then you completely have to flip a switch completely and you suddenly are expected nay commanded to be okay with any and all physical intimacy because it is what you're supposed to do because mm-hmm. you are supposed to go forth and lie with your husband and multiply and Be comfortable with this. And that is damaging in a way that I don't even have words for. Yeah. It's it's societal manipulation at its very heart. Because it's that idea of women need to cover up their stomachs and wear one-piece swimsuits. Men play basketball shirtless inside the church building all the time. They never say women shouldn't be tempted by these men. If I was to roll my sleeves up, it was inappropriate. If I were to cuff my short sleeves and make them tank tops, it was inappropriate. Mentioning the word bra is inappropriate and tempting to young men. But, like, that's that's wild to me now, stepping back from it and realizing the way the standards were set so completely one-sidedly. And, like, I know men are taught— Certain thing you have to be the good husband and provider. You have to be this. You have to be that, et cetera, et cetera. I know they also have it. That's what I'm saying is I'm aware they also have difficulties in that area because purity culture swings both ways because you're taught your job is to be pure and chaste and perfect for your husband. And husbands are also therefore taught your wife has been pure and chaste and waiting for you. Therefore, sex is going to be easy. It's just a thing that happens. We're taught so often that if you're tempted and you're alone in the same room with an opposite sex, with, with a, if, if a man is alone with a woman, it's just going to happen.
1: Mm-hmm. So you
0: get married, you get into a situation where that's not happening for one reason or another. The men start to assume there's something wrong with them. The women start to assume there's something wrong with them. Neither of them know how to talk about it. But it's what happened in my marriage. Neither of us were equipped to actually have these conversations. Neither of us were equipped to understand the flaws in the intimacy of our relationship how it was affecting one another, how it was affecting ourselves or how to move past it at all. And instead it became a, well, this is what I was raised to think. Why isn't it right? And it got bad really fast. And it allowed what could have been misconstrued as just trying to have a healthy sex life into, I spent 90% of my marriage, never giving consent and doing it anyway, because I didn't know that was I didn't know. I did not understand. And neither did he. So, yeah. It
1: occurred to me while you were talking how dehumanizing this is for everyone involved. When we talk about purity culture and and all these dynamics, the focus is understandably Mm -hmm. so, so often on... You know how unfair and fucked up it is to mm-hmm. to put all that responsibility on. Don't be tempting. Don't cover. Mm-hmm. You, you have to cover yourself. You have to cover yourself. Mm-hmm. And it isn't talked about enough. How dehumanizing that is for men as well, because oh, yeah. it's teaching them that they're animals,
0: mm-hmm. that they have no self, they have no self control. Exactly. That's so fucked up. And that's what I'm saying. With it damages both. It yes. damages. It damages everybody because. They don't real. They've been taught this whole time. They've been taught this a whole time that they have no self control. Yeah, and that they are. It's it's expected that if you are in a tempting situation, you're going to make a mistake. Yeah, they've put a wall around sex and sexuality to the point where, to the point where it is not only taboo and therefore more appealing to just humans. We know that humans gravitate toward things they're not supposed to do. They have not given you the proper and adequate tools to deal with it or to acknowledge it or to talk about it or to understand it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: my my first husband, one of the reasons we struggled was, um, he was addicted to porn before we um before we started before we got together. and he oh, had wow. tried to shut that off. But because of that, his only instincts and understanding of sex came from porn, which meant, The moment that we were allowed to be together, he expected me to be a porn star. He expected me. mm -hmm. Had you ever seen porn? Never in my life. Um, Jeez. Yeah. He expected me. I wasn't even comfortable being naked in front of him yet. I was undoing a lifetime of cover up, stay safe, stay whatever in a night. I was a virgin until my wedding night. We had sex once, it was fine. And then immediately he expected me to be a porn star. Immediately it was, well, now we can try this. Well, now we can try that. Well, now we can try this. And I wasn't even comfortable having sex yet. I was not used to this. It was new, it was terrifying. And from day one, I was not good enough. I was told from day one that because I wasn't capable or interested in doing these things these porn stars were doing, that I was wrong, that I was failing him. Because the only expectation he had for sex was it's to make kids or it's for the husband's enjoyment.
1: Yeah. Hun, I'm so sorry you went through this.
0: Oh, I have barely, have barely scratched the surface, honestly, of that whole situation. <laughs> um, I have pulled up exactly what I wrote that was the post that got back to him. Mm-hmm. Just to make sure I'm not blocking anything out again. Because I forgot several times. I'm like, oh, great. That happened. Um, because there's two really, really important things that happened that made this worse. Mm-hmm. This already bad situation. Right? Like I said, I was, I was, I was, uh, if it's okay for me to talk about. Go for it. I don't it. know if you have, like order. Okay. Um, so I, I immediately started associating sex with failure. Because I was not doing, I was not rising to the expectations that he had for me. I was not rising to the expectations of willing to do it anywhere, anytime, all these things. Which also put in his head the idea that he wasn't sexy enough for me. Mm -hmm. If I didn't want to do these things, it was clearly because I didn't want him. And that was never anything that really got discussed properly. And me telling him I was attracted to him didn't matter because I wasn't doing the sex things right. (laughs) In addition, I had an undiagnosed situation that caused excruciating pain every time we had sex. Now, two things happened shortly before all of this or during all this is during um, our first semester back at college uh, together after getting married because I had freshman year and then we got married that summer. A year from the day we met. Because Mormons. Um, you get married fast because you're not supposed to have sex until you get married. It just you go. Um was can I ask yes. was the marriage arranged or did mm-hmm. you just meet nope. or we just met you connected? Okay. No, we met, we connected, genuinely fell in love with this person. That's one of the things that made it so hard. Like I I adored him. We were we were best friends, we were so close. Okay. Um, so we got married, moved in first semester. We took a marriage and family class. Seemed like a very good idea at the time. A lot of these things they taught were very helpful about communication and about all these things. But two things happened during this class. You had to be a married couple to take it, by the way, or about to be married because they were going to be talking about intimate things and you couldn't talk about that with just any student. Okay. So we learned about good girl syndrome. If you've never heard of good girl syndrome, fuck it. It is essentially the byproduct of being raised intensely religious. The idea is women are told their whole lives that they are meant to be pure and chaste and that sex is a wicked thing. And then suddenly, the moment they get married, they are expected to switch and completely change the direction of your mindset. Often, good girl syndrome masks itself as discomfort or pain or tightness, but it's really in your head. Mm. Bullshit, by the Mm. way. Mm. We're taught that good girl syndrome exists and therefore that we can just push past it and it's all imagined. The second thing we learned in that class was we saw a study in which men and women were hooked up to machines and asked to watch porn. And at the end of it, they were asked if they were aroused. And the men said yes, and the women said no. But the monitors on her heart rate and brain waves said she was aroused. She just wasn't aware that she was aroused. So we were taught that because science, women actually were more turned on than they thought. They just didn't know that they were more turned on than they thought. So after that, almost every sexual encounter I had with my husband was rape. Because when I tried to complain about the pain, he said, it's just in your head. When I said I wasn't in the mood, he said, you're turned on, you just don't know it. Holy shit. When I tried to talk about it, he said, if we do it more, the imaginary issues will go away. A year in, when I was diagnosed with an actual medical condition, as opposed to being apologetic or feeling bad, like my mom did. She felt awful that she hadn't understood what I meant when I said I was in pain. His response was, so you're getting a procedure to fix it so we can have a good, we can have sex now and you won't be broken anymore. His response was, his response was fixing something in me physically meant everything else would go away. Unfortunately, by this time I had so associated pain and embarrassment with sex that even if I did enjoy it at that point, it wouldn't have mattered. It was so deeply ingrained in me after a year of this that I was going to be uncomfortable or in pain. And every time I tried to put things up to try to help myself with that, he saw them as failings and shortcomings to the point where he brought them up in couples counseling. He would say, she needs to make sure every door is locked and every window is closed before we can even try to have sex. I'm like, yeah, because I'm uncomfortable and I'm worried because we live in a religious neighborhood and your mom just comes over sometimes and I don't want her to just come in. This is intimate and private to me and you don't care. And he's like, yeah, because it ruins the mood. Anytime I tried to make myself comfortable and it got in his way, I was ruining the mood. Anytime I tried to say no, anytime I tried to say not now, he would, well, when? It's been eight months. It's been this amount of time. Why? Why aren't, When are you going to say yes? When we were finally getting separated. He'd moved out and I had, had sex with this other man and realized that I actually enjoyed it. And I didn't know that I could enjoy it. I didn't know it was a thing that women could like or want or crave. He looked at me and said, I'm going to prove that you're still attracted to me. And that was the one instance in my head that I thought of as attempted rape because he tried and I wouldn't let him go through with it. And in my head, that was attempted rape. That was the line. And I was telling my husband about all of this, my now husband. And and that was when he said, babe, all of that was rape. Everything that he did. Everything that he said to you. And my long distance partner said the same thing. He's like, yeah, manipulation of consent is fucking rape. Yeah. And... And that is what I came clean and talked about. That is what I brought up in this little private group about healing. It was people who had left the church or had left this church school we went to and were trying to find healing. And I was bringing it up to them because I thought they'd be able to relate. And somehow it got back to him anyway. And he started telling people that I had just been insatiable and one man couldn't keep me sexually happy and all of these things. And, and, uh, and I found out after the fact that he was trying to use me having an affair after we separated as, as sympathy for himself. He was trying to get other women to make out with him or sleep with him. He was abusing his position as a security guard at school to be in the women's dorms after hours, he, all these things. And at its core, because I was still trying to live as a good Mormon woman, I got turned into the honor council at school for breaking the honor code. And I was kicked out of school and excommunicated from the church. For cheating on him. He had cheated on me before we were married. When we were engaged. The the spring break during which I was buying my wedding dress. He was cheating on me. With a mutual friend. And he was never kicked out of school. Because I refused to throw him under the bus. Because I was taught that it was my job to gatekeep morality and purity. Mm -hmm. And he was then allowed to stay at school. Get this job as a security guard. Where I know he abused that position. I put other women in danger by not turning him in. He was never kicked out of church. He was basically given disfellowshipped, which is a slap on the wrist, and then he was back in good standing. And to this day, by his own admission, uses LARP events as an excuse to cheat on his wife. Mm. I've had people come forward and tell me, "Yeah, he was bragging to me about making out with other women at LARPs because what happens at a LARP stays at a LARP." Yeah, he tried to date me the moment you moved out of school. Yeah, he tried to hit on me and get us to like cross some lines as soon as you left. And I was so scared of my own shit and it getting back to the wrong people and hurting my parents or hurting my aunt and uncle or myself or anybody that I, I let that fear get in the way. And I'm terrified that there's other women out there that I don't know about who, who he crossed lines with. I am terrified that he did something that I don't know about not because I'm afraid for me, but because I know he came very close to crossing lines with me before we were married. And lonely and horny and desperate and angry and given a position of power, I absolutely believe that he would have done it again. And it sucks. And it sucks that I'm I'm still recovering from the trauma of feeling like sexually I was not good. And I still deal with that to this day uh, because my formative years were all him telling me I was doing everything wrong. And then also to be weighed down with this, good God! Your silence could have gotten other people hurt. Your silence probably got other people hurt. It's
1: terrifying. <laughs> do not put that on yourself. Like I, I, I heard it the first time you said it, and I like waited. I wanted to wait, <laughs> but do not make yourself responsible for the actions of a predator. I'm trying real hard
0: not to, and that, but that's it's that so deep upbringing hard. thing. Like, I've, it's I've got, so I've got hard. some of
1: that that guilt for, for keeping silent myself. So yeah. I completely understand an abuser or a predator's actions. Like, they're the ones who are making the choices that they're making. Mm-hmm. And you cannot. Don't carry that guilt. That's theirs. It should be theirs. They've shifted it onto you. They're trying to make you carry that shit. They're trying to make you responsible for it. It's not yours. Put it down.
0: Try really away. hard. <laughs> I well, that was what was interesting. Was like I was so afraid of losing all these friends from college or losing all these whatever when he when he posted all this shit. And instead, I had people coming forward privately to me in droves, saying, "Here's all these things he did that made me uncomfortable. I never trusted him. Here's all this shit he's saying about you. I don't believe him. Here's all the and." For me, that was the biggest turning point in being a little more comfortable talking about my truth is I realized the people who heard things like this from him about me, who were true, genuine people, who actually knew me or wanted to get to know the real me, weren't going to believe him. And that was very inspiring to me and safe. It made me feel safe talking about some of this because I realized that so many people came forward and asked they were like, hey, sorry yeah. if this crosses a line. Here's this shit I heard from him. Is Can I ask how much of this is true? And I was like, ah, happily. Um, in fact, I went public. And I was like, hey, guys, um, some of you may have heard some shit that was going on. Yes, I did technically have an affair after he moved out. And we were already planning on getting a divorce. Not before. His family absolutely thinks it's before it is not. He did some shit, too, that I'm not going to put him on blast for because it is not the point. And you and I discussed privately some of that. Yeah. Um, I, However, what you need to know is this. He is never going to accept it, but what he did to me was rape. So no, I'm not going to apologize for making a mistake. I absolutely did. Should I have waited until we were legally divorced to sleep with another man? Absolutely, I should have. Would it have changed what happened between she and me? No. As a matter of fact, if I hadn't, and he and I had fixed, quote unquote, our marriage, I would probably still be in a position where I was being abused and didn't know it. I would be in a position where I was still being put in compromising abusive situations and I would not have been aware of it. That's that's the big difference. I regret the timing of the affair because it gives him an excuse to make me look like a villain. I don't regret that it happened. I don't regret that I discovered that I could like sex. I don't regret the fact that he and I got divorced. I regret the order of operations there because it gave him the ability to make me a scapegoat for all of his problems. And and it lets him get away with a lot that he should, it shouldn't have been the focus. The focus of the public argument should not have been, well, she broke a rule. The focus should have been, you are not, you were not responsible with our sex life. You were irresponsible and reckless with the intimacy I trusted you with. And you need to be better. And anyone who's in that position needs to be aware and be better. Like, again, it wasn't about him. Women who are like me need to know that they can either get out of that situation, that they need to be able to talk about it with their husbands if they're still in those relationships, or they need to be allowed to find a way to heal from unknown abuse, you know? I gotta say, even if you hadn't had that
1: affair, I mean, like, I didn't grow up with the, with the same values. So like my, my, in my values, I don't view it as an affair or as a yeah. violation because the.
0: Well, the neither neither did my first. parents, neither. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Neither did anybody else, but for legality paperwork and, and school, the fact that I was at a religious university, a I, I, affair. <laughs> I, I literally could not graduate college because of that. Which is I don't have a degree. I wild. don't have a degree. Whereas he has a teaching degree. I've had people come to me and be like, I don't trust him as a high school teacher, just by the way. I don't trust him with the female students. And I'm like, yeah, neither do I. But mm. I have no I have no way of dealing with that. I have no way of – I don't. I don't – if I'm being completely honest, I do not trust him as a high school teacher. But I- <sighs> sounds valid just from
1: the picture that you're painting me, which is not great. Um, yeah. But I, I got to say, even without that affair, he would have made you the bad guy anyway. He would have found a way. You could have been a fucking saint the whole way through. And if you had exited that marriage, he would have found a way to make you the bad guy. And the system is set up so that everybody in charge was always going to agree with him.
0: And, And that was very true because everybody, his aunt showed up on my doorstep to call me a whore. As I was in the middle of moving out and moving home and packing to leave, she just had to get that word in. She showed up on my doorstep to tell me to never speak to anyone in her family again. A, I didn't want to. B, it wasn't her business. And I actually told her this when she asked me to spill all our secrets when I was like, it's not a one-sided issue, but thanks. She's like, well, tell me what I did wrong. And I legitimately looked at her in the face and I was like, no, because he still has to live with you monsters. He still has to live with your judgment. I don't. And I believe that. It took him years to come clean about his own sins. And I use sins loosely. Uh, to them sins. To me, mm, the other shit is worse. He has never admitted the sexual, the, the issues that we had sexually. Ever. Because he doesn't acknowledge them as real problems. Um, he He instead sees them as, she didn't want to have sex with me. She was wrong. Mm-hmm. She was not good at sex with me. She was wrong. She was not willing to give me sex to keep me happy. She was wrong. Mm -hmm. But his own mistakes, his own cheating before we got all those things he finally came clean to his family about. But it took years. And a lot of pressure from them also. Because uh, when she showed up on my doorstep, they did not know the whole story. Yeah. And it didn't matter. Because I was the whore who broke their, their baby boy's heart. Didn't matter what we'd done. Didn't matter what he'd done. Didn't matter any of it. I could have known about the abuse back then. I could have realized I was being abused at the time and it wouldn't have mattered to them because divorce is seen as a taboo and a sin in the church Mm. because you're only supposed to have sex with one person ever being remarried is still got a stigma attached to it in the most fundamentalist branches of the Mormon church, which is fucked up. My husband died, and I needed to remarry and wanted to have kids with them, and I was seen as a as a, an adulteress, especially considering that polygamy was actually very big in the church for a long time, and so there were men who were sleeping with multiple women, but if a woman does it, she's a whore. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot Ayo. that fact. Wait, Most people forget that that's actually a staple of the Mormon history. I forgot that. <laughs> You're welcome. Um when there's so much other shit going on that you forget that they were actively polygamists for like 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, like the point you where, like, reality shows. You're check. welcome. <laughs> like for the point where like, I grew up with people making jokes about, do you have a bunch of moms? I'm like, no, that's not actually a thing that we do anymore. Like, that's not a thing. And it's true, it's not a thing. Still some dudes that try to make it a thing, but. Oh yeah. Oh, 100%. Oh,
1: 100%. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in for part two of my interview with Caitlin on August 30th. Please check episode notes to find Caitlyn on Twitch as Chaos Pixie Magic. You can also learn more about her many projects and to find her books, The Map Weaver Chronicles. This is a call to action. Caitlyn and her husband are in need of help. Caitlyn is about to be laid off. They are struggling financially and behind on rent. They are trying to keep their housing, and any and all help is deeply appreciated. It's also her birthday in a few days, so please go show her some love. You'll find donation links to her Ko-Fi and Patreon in episode notes as well. She is an incredible person, an extraordinary content creator, and she works so hard every day. Please help if you can. The Season 4 Letters for the Fire Project is receiving submissions until the end of the year, Listeners are welcome to write a letter to their rapist or abuser, and I will read it during a special episode at the end of Season 4. If you'd like to learn more, you can listen to Season 3's Letters for the Fire episode and read the blog entry on the website to learn more about how to submit your letter and participate in the project. A massive shout out to my Patreon members who make everything possible, Sadanka, Emerald, Kathleen, Betty, and Sharanya. I love and appreciate you all so, so much. So, so much. This morning, Finding OK reached a massive milestone. The podcast now has 30,000 downloads. My mind is thoroughly boggled. <laughs> I will figure out some way to celebrate, but it might take a bit because this is so huge. This is so far beyond anything I could have imagined when I began this project. Finding OK had its three-year anniversary just a few days ago on the 11th of August. I am truly humbled to be here with you all these years later. We've come So far, and we're only just getting started. I am full of plans and ideas, and I'm so glad you're here with me, making it all possible. Just by listening, you've all changed my life forever. Thank you. I am currently fundraising to afford a Descript subscription in order to make Finding Okay more accessible to the deaf hearing impaired, and neurodivergent communities by providing transcripts for episodes. This is the next big step for finding okay, and it will help me reach more survivors who are seeking support. Any and all help is appreciated. Come find me on Twitch for variety live streams and podcast Q&A sessions where you can ask me anything. Become a Patreon member at various tiers to support the podcast and to gain access to bonus picks, audio, sneak peeks, and occasional early access and video episodes. Please visit the podcast website, www.finding-ok.com. It's where you can find all the links to my social media. It's where you can learn more about me and all my guests. It's where you can read reviews, leave reviews, contact me, It's also where you can find links to donate. Finding OK is crowdfunded. It is listener support that is keeping the podcast alive. If only a handful of the people who listened to each episode donated one or two dollars, the podcast would be fully funded. If you can't afford to donate or become a member on Patreon, one of the best ways you can support the show is by reviewing and sharing online or by word of mouth. Thank you again for listening. This has been Finding Okay. Black Lives Matter. Take care of yourself.
0: Your heart is a muscle, size of your fist. Keep on loving, keep on fighting, and hold on, and hold on. Hold on for your life, for your life, for your life. Your heart is a muscle, size of your fist. Keep on loving.